It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, it's a great pleasure to be with you on the weekend. And uh, we got a couple things to talk about, don't we? Uh, this crazy indictment of uh, Donald Trump, which is going to go nowhere. And actually, I, I shouldn't say nowhere. You know what? This indictment will be settled in the election in November of 2024. That's how this is going to be settled, because nothing's going to happen before then. With all the witnesses they're going to have to call down in Miami and the court challenges, and there'll be all kinds of technical challenges. But uh, this is just blatant politics by Joe Biden and his Attorney General Merrick Garland and uh, General Counsel, Special Counsel, whatever his name is, Jack Smith, a guy with a checkered past who loses the cases he's tried. In fact, he lost the Supreme Court case 8 nothing. But I want to talk about several things. We're going to have Senator Ron Johnson on uh, at at the half hour to talk about this stuff. Mr. Johnson was one of the very first to talk about Joe Biden's Burisma problem, Joe Biden's bribery problem, which I think is a much bigger story here than the Donald Trump uh, indictment, which I think is as phony as a $3 bill, all right? And uh, we did some work. Uh, Fox Digital ran a story. You ought to go get it if anybody's interested in this. It ran... uh, Thursday night, yeah, it ran Thursday night, Brooke Singman, reporter. Uh, anyway, it's it's not a coincidence that after the, after the FBI, who tried to hide all these documents regarding Hunter Biden and Burisma and the Biden family criminal scandals, you know, that comes out Thursday. The members of the Oversight Committee get a chance to actually read the documents this so-called uh, 1023 document. By the way, it wasn't just a document. It turns out it was a number of documents. Anyway, all of uh, all of James Comer's people, committee members, had a chance uh, to read this thing. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And basically, the point here is that President Biden was allegedly paid $5 million by an executive of the Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings. Remember, Hunter Biden was on the board uh, of Burisma Holdings, and a confidential human source told the FBI in a June 2020 interview that... um, that uh, in order to stop an attorney general in Ukraine, right? An attorney general in Ukraine, they bribed Hunter Biden for $5 million and they bribed Joe Biden uh, for $5 million. This is a highly credible confidential source who detailed multiple meetings and conversations that the source had with the top Burisma executive 
over the course of several years, starting in, get this, 2015. 2015. And uh, this source related the conversations with Burisma. Burisma wanted to get U.S. oil rights, wanted to be involved with a U.S. oil company, and um, Burisma had to pay the Bidens because Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin was investigating Burisma, and they wanted to get rid of Shokin. Okay, they want to get rid of him. So they paid five million for one Biden, five million for the other Biden. It was a pay-to-play scheme, and this is a very, again, a very credible, confidential source who has been used by the FBI for years. I think the FBI paid him two hundred thousand dollars. I'm not going to say him; it's him or her. And by and large. Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden replaced this attorney general and bragged about it in a speech to the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Bragged about it after he was out of office. Now, this information comes out Thursday, and all of a sudden... The special counsel, Jack Smith, announces the indictment of Donald Trump for documents. So this is no coincidence, is it? This is no coincidence. In order to try to distract from the Burisma story, which is a devastating story, this is the one, by the way, where you know, a dozen friends and family members each had these little LLC small businesses, and they each received money. That's how it was channeled up through Hunter Biden and Joe Biden to the tune of $10 million, $5 million for each. So they released the indictment to try to distract from it. And then the indictment itself was sealed wasn't supposed to be open till Tuesday. That was the court date set in Miami. But of course, they unsealed it yesterday to try to beat the uh, weekend news cycle. And again, to distract from any discussions of the Biden pay for play scandal. This, uh, by the way, will be, and again, it's alleged, I realize that. But the evidence is mounting everywhere across the board. But uh, this this scandal is not going to go away. It is the, will be, if it turns out, it will be the biggest political scandal in American history. The biggest political scandal in American history. Now, another thing I want to say about this, You know, uh, this guy Jack Smith, the special counsel, talked about how justice is going to be even-handed, fairness, all people. But it's not. Because here's Joe Biden's scandal of his own on classified documents. Uh, As senator, 
he took documents home and scattered them, you know, in Washington, D.C., in Chinatown in Washington, at his home in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. That's against the law. Senators have no authority, no power with the Presidential Records Act. None, zero. But somehow he took them home. He's not getting busted for that yet, is he? And then, of course, as vice president, he did the same thing. He took uh, records home, and those records have been found. And by the way, we don't even know there's other things. Uh, apparently, something like 1,800 boxes uh, somewhere is in Washington, D.C. I don't think that's been opened. There is a special counsel investigating that, but that's going to be weighed. Like, they're slow walking that. And then, of course, the issue of Hillary Clinton and her 3,000 erased emails, and she had her own operation set up in the basement of her home while she was Secretary of State. She had no business doing that. Those were classified documents. Barack Obama had classified documents. Bill Clinton had classified documents. Nobody, nobody busted them. Only Donald Trump gets busted. Only Trump gets busted. So you got to ask yourself, why is this? And the answer, of course, of course, is that Joe Biden and the entire Democratic Party has for years tried to attack Trump and destroy Trump, and they failed to do so. Right now, the sole obsession of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden is to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. That's what this is really about. I mean, this indictment, uh, 37 counts, 31 counts have to do uh, with something called the Espionage Act, which is an ancient piece of legislation which has been discredited. This has nothing to do with espionage at all. This is, you know, this is the Presidential Records Act. Okay, there was no mention, however, of the Presidential Records Act in this indictment. Isn't that odd? Because that's what these documents are all about. And the president has the power to classify, to unclassify. He can do any darn thing he wants. This has nothing to do with espionage. This has nothing to do with treason. There's no uh, argument that Trump sold classified documents to foreign governments or gave classified documents to foreign governments. There's just a silly argument that he talked to somebody who was writing a book about it. Well, you can talk to anybody you want. It's a free country. And even that's suspect because we don't know what the context was. That's the whole thing. 31 charges for espionage, and the Espionage Act is a bunch of baloney. goes back to 1917. Woodrow Wilson used it against his political enemies. The Presidential Records Act, however, is a civil issue, not a criminal issue. They're trying to criminalize this whole story by throwing in the Espionage Act. All right, we have a clip of my dear friend Mark Levin, uh, famous uh, Fox contributor, appearing on Sean Hannity's show Thursday evening. Let me let you listen 
to what Mark Levin had to say about this. Play the tape, please. Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute, and it was never intended to be. The Espionage Act of 1917 was passed under Woodrow Wilson, another corrupt president. president. Woodrow Wilson used it to go after his adversaries, and they imprisoned 2,000 people. So I suppose over there at the Department of Injustice, and this clown prosecutor spent a lot of time at The Hague, they probably figured these laws could be used to try and entrap Trump. All these obstruction issues that they claim, where the former Attorney General, Bill Barr, comes up here and bloviates about it, and all the formers coming on talking about obstruction. They have them on obstruction. There'd be no obstruction issue of any kind, not even in anybody's imagination, had they not criminalized this case. This is a document case. A document case where a president of the United States or a former president faces 100 years in federal prison? Is this some kind of a sick joke on the American people? Terrific stuff from Mark Levin. I'll just add one thing what Mark said is, what did he do with the documents? Did he show them to the enemy? No. That's why we have an Espionage Act, not to trick up a president. What did he do? Did he burn them all? No. The government has all the documents back, so there is no violation of the Presidential Records Act. Levin, who was a former uh, assistant in the uh, Justice Department to Attorney General Ed Meese, everybody knows Mark, and I think he said it about as well as anybody can say it. I'll go back to my first point. This whole thing was launched on Thursday to try to distract from the Burisma bribery scandal, and then the uh, charges were unsealed yesterday to try to distract from Burisma and beat the uh, weekend press conference. All the Democrats want here is to prevent Donald Trump from being president. And I'll make my last point before we take a quick break. The reason they're so obsessed is because Donald Trump is the toughest fighter there is. And if Donald Trump becomes president, if he becomes president, he will know now where all the bodies are buried. In his first term, he was pushed around on the Russian hoax business. He was completely exonerated, of course, by the Durham report. In his second term, he'll know exactly where to go. And he will go after the corruption in Washington, D.C. swamp. And the Democrats know that. This is Democrat Party corruption. They've been in power too long. Eight years with Obama, interrupted briefly by four years with Trump, and now two and a half years with Joe Biden. Complete corruption, including, of course, the Biden bribery scandal, but also the Biden document scandal, and also the Hillary Clinton document scandal. All of this, Trump will go after the corruption in the Justice Department, the corruption in the FBI, the corruption in the CIA. He will go after the corruption throughout the federal bureaucracy. And Trump will stop the weaponization of our legal system, the partisan political weaponization of our legal system. That will be one of his crucial missions. In addition to fixing the economy and restoring our prestige overseas, he will go after the corruption and the weaponization of our legal and justice system, and the Democrats know that, 
and the Democrats know that their entrenched people in these key law enforcement and spying intel agencies will be fired. They know that. And that is what this is really all about. has nothing to do with documents. It has nothing to do with criminalization. It has nothing to do with the Espionage Act. It has to do with Trump, who is such a fighter. I call it fightingness. Trump's fightingness is the single biggest problem for the Democratic Party and their corruption in Washington, D.C., and spreading throughout the country. The Alvin Braggs, this crazy indictment here in uh, Palm Beach in Florida, the Georgia election, all utter nonsense, all Democratic efforts to stop Trump from becoming president. I'll make one last point because I want to be as even-handed as I can with respect to the Republican presidential race. Even Trump's Republican presidential primary competitor, his principal competitor, Governor DeSantis, DeSantis tweeted Thursday night, and I'll quote, The weaponization of federal law enforcement represents a mortal threat to a free society. We have for years witnessed an uneven application of the law depending on political affiliation. That was DeSantis's quote, and what I'll say is good for him. Well said, Mr. DeSantis. Well said, Governor DeSantis. That's Trump's biggest competitor. Is Trump going to take the primaries? Well, he's up by, I don't know, 30-plus points. We'll see about all that. But his fighterness, fightingness, that's what the Democrats fear because he will blow up their corruption in Washington, D.C. And that's what this is all about, folks. We'll take a quick break. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. LarryKudlowShow.com plays all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And by the by, uh, during the week, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. If you can't get us at 4, you can just text your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. Incidentally, the show now is replayed at 7 p.m. as well. So there's plenty of opportunities to hear that. The other side of the break, we're going to talk to Senator Ron Johnson, who was one of the very first people to go after the Burisma story and what will be the biggest political scandal in American history. Senator Ron Johnson, right after these messages. This. Is 77 WABC Newsroom Extra. Legendary actor and New York City icon Robert De Niro is now the recipient of a key to the city. You have opened our hearts for years and for generations. We've all grew up. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We welcome back to the show a great friend and a great senator, Mr. Ron Johnson from the state of Wisconsin. Senator Johnson, thank you, sir. We appreciate it very much. Good morning, Larry. Uh, happy to be on. 
You know, you and uh, Senator Chuck Grassley were really, I think, the first to go and begin to delve into this uh, Burisma-Biden bribery scandal. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about that because there's been a lot of breaking news about it with the FBI document uh, now shared by James Comer and his entire oversight committee. And, sir, there's a, um, a phenomenal article on Fox Digital by reporter Brooke Singman that walks through uh, so much of this and that this FBI source, a highly credible source, talking to top Burisma executive about exactly what they were doing. Uh, the source itself is a business person, uh, but the Burisma people wanted to gain U.S. oil rights and get involved in a U.S. oil company, but they were being prosecuted by Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin, so they decided to go on ahead and pay $5 million to Hunter Biden and $5 million to Joe Biden, the pay-to-play scheme, in order to change policies so they could get into the U.S. oil market. Uh, this is the most I've ever seen on this. I wanted to get your view because you and uh, Chuck Grassley have been looking at this story. I mean, I think this is a bigger story than the Trump uh, story, frankly. But uh, what can you tell us about that? Have you been speaking to people on the Oversight Committee, and have you been following this carefully? Well, obviously, I've been following it. Um, you know, Senator Grassley and I, we were investigating Hunter Biden, oh, tail end of 2019, uh, 2020. This is around the Trump impeachment, uh, the first Trump impeachment. And, you know, when, when the whole conflict of interest of Hunter Biden being hired on the Burisma board, he had no experience whatsoever. In the end, he, you know, got received about $4 million in, in board fees. Uh, but th then, you know, we, we got treasury records that just showed a vast web of different wire transfers, millions and millions of dollars coming from China, coming from Russia, uh, coming from all over the place. I mean, you know, the Biden family, they're, they're a bunch of grifters. Um, it is interesting that we did not see any suspicious uh, transfers uh, directly to Joe Biden. Um, so. I think the first thing that's going through my mind, I mean, I'll, you know, I, I know so many of these details, it's kind of hard to distill it down, but if the FBI, and it sounds like uh, they started getting these confidential human sources as early as early in 2017, I mean, right as the Trump presidency is beginning, of course, they've got their crossfire hurricane fraudulent investigation that uh, melded into the Mueller special counsel. I mean, put ourselves, you know, our country through political torment all on a complete hoax Here's a, a very real, a very credible allegation. Um, we, we've got, again, Joe Biden taking credit for getting Victor Shogun fired. Uh, did they investigate? Did they look at bank records? Because that's, that's the first thing you look at, right? Uh, I certainly didn't have the power to subpoena those bank records. I didn't know about this. They knew about that. Did they go and investigate Joe Biden? That's the question I have right now. Uh, that's certainly what James Comer has to do at this point in time. Is he, he needs to start investigating Joe Biden, which is why he wanted that document, to get as much information as possible so he would know, you know what, what banks do we need to investigate. You know, one thing that has never really been answered, that there's a real mismatch between what Joe Biden's reported as income 
and what he has reported in terms of assets. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, John Solomon has reported on that, and just nobody's really been able to dig into that. So, you know, I agree with Senator Grassley. You know, when this, you know, the whistleblower came to his office, and he's been pretty consistent in saying his question. We, I already know, we already know how corrupt the Bidens are. His question is, what did the FBI, what did federal law enforcement do with this? You know, we, we know in, in August of 2020, uh, through a whistleblower, that the FBI had developed a scheme to downplay any derogatory information on Hunter Biden. They, they set up a special file with very limited access. Was this information actually turned into uh, over to uh, Attorney Weiss, who is supposedly investigating this? We, we have, by the way, a whistleblower coming into our office saying that Attorney, or Attorney District or U.S. Attorney Weiss doesn't have the necessary resources to do a proper investigation. Now we know through an IRS whistleblower, the entire IRS investigatory team was pulled off the Hunter Biden uh, tax evasion investigation. So, again, there's so much corruption going on. There's so many moving parts to this thing. You know, how do you break it all down, particularly when you've got a federal law enforcement that I don't trust? We, have, we, ha- we can't have confidence in these people. And that's, you know, Larry, if you would have asked me a couple of years ago, what is the greatest threat to, to U.S., I, I would say what other people said, our debt and deficit. It still is an enormous threat. Right now, I just think the breaking of precedent, the division of this country, the fact that we just simply can't trust these institutions anymore. This is incredibly corrosive and cancerous on our on our body politics and our nation. This is this is really concerning what's happened in this country. You know, in this Fox Digital report, uh, Senator, the FD ten twenty three form, I'm just gonna read you from this report. The FD ten twenty three form, which is dated June thirtieth, twenty twenty, is the FBI's interview with quote, a highly credible, end quote, confidential source. Listen to this who detailed multiple meetings and conversations he or she had with the top Burisma executive over the course of several years, starting in 2015. 2015, okay? Biden was vice president. Obama was president. And it goes on to report that essentially the confidential source was talking to a top Burisma executive and what was at stake here, this is, was new information to me at least, Burisma wanted to come into the U.S. They wanted to get U.S. oil rights and they wanted to get involved with a U.S. company. But they couldn't do it. They were being blocked and part of the blockage was this uh, Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, who was investigating Burisma. So the U.S. government wouldn't give them any rights while this investigation was going on. So they went to the Bidens and paid them all this money, again, $5 million to Hunter, $5 million to uh, Joe Biden, through these multiple accounts, these LLC accounts for family and friends. I mean, I don't think anybody realized how long this was going on. I don't think anybody realized what the, you know, the ultimate motive or purpose was. They wanted to, Burisma wanted to come into the U.S. And then Joe Biden brags at a speech uh, at the Council of Foreign Relations after he was out of office that he got rid of Victor Shokin. Now, I know that that is somewhat circumstantial, but you got a whole story there that, um, I find very interesting, and I don't think the public is aware of this. 
Well, Larry, it literally started in 2014. Again, we lay out this timeline in our report, uh, but the Revolution Dignity occurred in February 2014. Uh, by April of that year, uh, Devin Archer, who's now a con- convicted criminal, okay, and his appeal was not accepted, so he'll be going to jail probably. That was Hunter Biden's uh, business partner. He joined the board of Burisma a couple days after he met with Joe Biden in the White House a few days before Joe Biden went to Ukraine in April of 2014 Mm. and was labeled the point person for the White House on Ukraine. Mm. This was in 2014. A few weeks later, Hunter Biden joins the board. They knocked down about $4 million in in board fees, and Hunter Biden's completely uh, unqualified for the job. Now, to my knowledge, what Burisma wanted is their CEO, and it's hard to pronounce the guy's name, so I won't even try he just had like $23 million worth of assets seized in, U- in the U.K. I mean, that's how corrupt he was. You know, he wanted to get visas in the U.S. I mean, he wanted to be rehabilitated. You know, so so they, they get this uh, uh, US Democrat lobbying firm, Blue Star Strategies, who I was never able to subpoena records for them because I didn't have support of the committee. But all this stuff was happening in 2014, mm. and it just continued. So, no, this, mm. the, the, the Biden grift of Ukraine started in 2014 and continued throughout the Obama presidency. And, probably, so, you know, so, no, this, not, this, the Bidens are a corrupt family. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just saying. So then, yes, yeah, so then this uh, source, this confidential source... He picks up the story in 2015, and that's where the and then it just goes on, and that's where the arrangements were made to make these payments to the Bidens. Now, you know, Senator, I mean, I think that it was quite a coincidence, don't you think, that after James Comer and his committee gets to finally look at these FBI documents. All of a sudden, that's Thursday, all of a sudden later in the day comes the news of the indictment. And then it was not supposed to be unsealed until Tuesday when uh, former President Trump is scheduled to appear before the grand jury in Miami, Florida. But they unlocked it, they unsealed it yesterday in order to get the uh, weekend news cycle. This to me is a you know, tactics to distract from the Burisma story, which I think is going to be a, a more devastating story than the Trump story. Well, I, I agree with you. It's, it's no coincidence whatsoever. And, of course, the mainstream media will play along with it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's, you know, that, that is sort of the major institution in this country uh, that is corrupt, that Americans have lost confidence in. So it's like, well, what is truth? But you know the mainstream media will be backing up Biden you know, throughout this process, uh, all they all they will report on now is the Trump indictment. Mm-hmm. And here, here is my big concern: is how long is this thing going to play out? You know, I, I hope you know, we're hearing that this trial won't even occur till after the presidential election. This trial has to occur like next week. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the president has to have an opportunity to defend himself. This is now in the court of law, uh, but it should be brought into a court of law, and this ought to be decided very rapidly. This ought to be on a rocket docket, and this simply can't linger. It will linger. It will linger. I mean, I don't think this thing ends until the presidential election. What about Joe Biden's documents? There's a special counsel there. When are we going to get the, uh, when are we gonna get the results of that investigation? 
as vice president, as you know, Senator Johnson, as vice president, Joe Biden had no authority whatsoever to take any documents back to his home or his office. And as a senator, he has no authority to do that. That's all under the Presidential Records Act, uh, which is a civil matter. Uh, what about that? I mean, is this equal justice for all? No, and, and we don't have equal justice. You know, we, we have a multi-tier system of justice, one, one for the politically connected to Democrats, and that'd be the Hunter Bidens of the world. Then you've got, uh, you know, a system of justice distinct for President Trump, and then kind of a system of justice for all of us. Uh, it, it is a complete double standard. You know, Hillary Clinton talked about obstruction of justice. She destroyed 30,000 emails on a private server that she knew full well she shouldn't be storing any documents on. Uh, so, no, that is why the American public is just losing confidence in all of these institutions. They realize it's not fair. Um, it, 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 this, is, this is what is so incredibly dangerous about the political environment today. You don't have equal application of justice. You don't have any level of an unbiased mainstream media uh, holding both sides equally accountable. Uh, so, again, what, what, what is truth? Uh, it's it's getting really, really concerning what's happening in our country. Senator, can you? I got to take commercial break. I want to come back and talk to you about the weaponization of our justice system, and I also want to talk to you about our problem with debt and deficits, which is a long way from being solved. You can just hang on for a couple of minutes. We're going to be right back, folks. We're talking to Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He was one of the earliest people, he and Chuck Grassley, to track down this Burisma pay-for-play bribery scandal. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back after this. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin who, along with Senator Chuck Grass, who were really the first to look at this uh, Biden pay-for-play scandal and the bribery scandal in the early stages of that. Senator Johnson, um, the FBI uh, was in possession of this uh, document going back to 2020. Uh, so James Comer had to threaten Christopher Wray, the FBI director, uh, again and again and again, like pulling teeth until he finally got the document. By the way, it's not a document. It's a number of documents, as it turns out. Is this an FBI cover-up in your judgment? That's my concern. And, uh, again, it's my understanding that some of these uh, reports came in as early as 2017. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had to subpoena Christopher Ray. Uh, I never got squat out of him. Uh, so... We, we certainly had the, the FBI provide us unsolicited briefing, uh, which they leaked then to smear me. So, no, the, the, the FBI, they had the fraudulent, uh, corrupt investigation of President Biden about the, the Russian hoax. Uh, again, this is a real concern when, when Americans can't trust these institutions that we have to trust. Uh, th- this, this is a real problem. And Christopher Ray has utterly failed. Uh, his primary mission was to restore integrity after James Comey the FBI, he's done the exact opposite. I mean, when you look at the indictment, when you look at the whole Democratic assault on Donald Trump, going back to his beginning of his presidency, and then, of course, the impeachment, which failed, 
Then you go back and uh, you look at uh, what's happened with Alvin Bragg in New York, which was a mockery of a um, of an indictment. And then, of course, you have this phony uh, indictment uh, about the documents. They're not. They don't even mention the Presidential Records Act in any of the uh, indictment charges. But isn't this um, Democratic fear that a Trump presidency will essentially clean the stables of corruption in Washington D.C.? the FBI, the CIA, the Justice Department, even the federal bureaucracy. I mean, Trump is a fighter. He's tough as nails. Uh, isn't that what this is really about? I do certainly think that's part of it. But, I mean, the tormenting of Donald Trump started as soon as he became the nominee for the Republican Party. I've never seen a political, a political figure tormented and attacked and undermined as much as President Trump. I mean, it was amazing to me. Two weeks into his presidency, uh, they leaked his phone conversation with two foreign leaders. I mean, that's unprecedented. But that happened time and time again. The media dropped all pretense of, uh, of being unbiased. They said, no, we, we got to take this guy out. He's so dangerous for democracy. I mean, we're, so again, I, I can't explain it. It really is Trump derangement syndrome, but it's been incredibly destructive to our country, what they've done. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Senator, let's switch gears. Um, so we had this uh, debt deal with some spending cuts and some policy changes. I thought it was a good first step, but it's a small first step. You mentioned earlier we have a great problem with deficits and debt. Um, what do you think is going to happen with this? This should be a major issue in the presidential campaign. The candidates haven't talked about it yet, really. Uh, what's your take? What's going to happen here? Well, let's just talk some numbers. You know, when we had the omnibus spending deal, you know, I asked my colleagues, I asked the Washington Press Corps, hey, any, anybody know how much the federal government spent last year? I mean, we're the largest financial entity in the world, and nobody could answer the question. Mm-hmm. But the answer was $6.3 trillion. Mm-hmm. But let me put that in context. In Before the COVID recession, we spent $4.4 trillion as a total federal government, right? Had we grown that by population growth, and Biden's 40-year high inflation, last year we would have spent $5.1 trillion. Instead, we spent $6.3. And this debt deal, and remember, the House Republicans, led by the House conservatives, passed, I thought, a reasonable debt ceiling bill to increase the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion with the RAINS Act and some other spending controls, right? But that wasn't good enough for Biden or, or the Democrats. So they did this deal. Not by $1.5 trillion, they just suspended the debt ceiling. So it'll be at least $4 trillion and pretty well locked in that $6.3 trillion spending level, which is just way too high a baseline. So in the end, I said, I'm, you know, I didn't vote for most of this massive deficit spending. I'll let those who supported it, you know, accommodate it by increasing the debt ceiling for the rec- you know, to cover their recklessness. But now, I wasn't happy with this deal, but the, it's the Democrats' fault. Let's face it, they could care less about mortgage our children's future, and Republicans, unfortunately, have not figured out a way to stop them. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems, I did support the deal, but I understand your reservations, and, and it wasn't enough. I was hoping one for one. You know, if you're going to increase the debt by $4 trillion, we should have cut spending by $4 trillion. But we never really got to that point. The question is, will we ever get to that point? I mean, will there be a budget resolution coming up? Oh, they're talking about it, but I, I doubt it. Um, you know, what, what I would have, and I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal the day after I got reelected, is I would have preferred 
attaching some structural things to it, things like preventing government shutdown act. You know, don't shut down the government. Just spend it last year's level till you get your act together. The no default act. By the way, this is a phony crisis. We have more, you know that we have more than enough revenue to service our debt, pay for Social Security and Medicare until we get our act together. We should do these things to just eliminate these supposed crises, which are really just an excuse to spend more money and lock in higher spending. Yeah, and you know, the Trump tax cuts start expiring right after the election in 25 and then 26, including your amendment, which gave a 20% deduction to small business. We're running out of time. We'll talk about that another time. But there's going to be a huge fight about all that. Anyway, Senator Ron Johnson, you're a prince for helping us today. Much gratitude, sir. Thank you ever so much. Every day. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to bring in Greg Jarrett, Fox contributor, lawyer extraordinaire, and uh, dig into some of these crazy charges inside the Trump indictment. Stay with us, please. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And bringing them my pal, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author, and his uh, newest book just out, Trial of the Century. Greg, I'm about, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm only about 30 pages short of being done with the book. It's very good. Very, very good. Well, thank you, good, Larry. But I, I think I learned more about Dayton, Tennessee, than I really need to know. <laughs> well, don't uh, miss the epilogue, because it brings it to uh, today, the present. Oh. And, uh, you know, how we are uh, assaulting free speech in America, and I give very specific examples. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll, I'll finish it tonight. Uh, it's a very good book, and I recommend thank it to you. everybody who's listening. Uh, Greg, I was reading uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning. I didn't realize this. Um, the indictment of Trump doesn't mention once the Presidential Records Act. It's it's really all about the espionage charge. Now, I don't understand this. Uh, we had a bunch of experts on the show last night, including Dershowitz. Dershowitz is a little concerned about the Espionage Act, but he acknowledged that it's a terrible Act. It was used by Woodrow Wilson to uh, slay and imprison his political enemies way back in 1917. I mean, <laughs> uh, Mark Levin nailed it in, uh, in the Hannity show the other night. Uh, this is about the Presidential Records Act. This is a civil matter, and it isn't clear that Trump's done anything wrong. But can you take us through this civil versus espionage and all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this is the argument I made literally on the air the night of the raid. Uh, Trump's main defense is the Presidential Records Act, which gives him the complete right under law to maintain custody and control of papers, and this is the important part, classified or not. Mm. Now, that's the governing statute, Larry. It's civil, not criminal. And indeed, for more than a decade, the D Department of Justice agreed that a former president can keep what he wants. That became the DOJ's established standard. They even argued it in federal court in the Bill Clinton case, stating rather emphatically 
that Bill Clinton was entitled to keep whatever he wants, including classified documents, after leaving office. He had kept tape recordings uh, in his sock drawer, uh, you know, of classified information. And the DOJ said, we're not going to seize it. We don't have the right to seize it. And guess what? A federal judge agreed, Amy Berman Jackson. Uh, She ruled that the National Archives does not have authority to even decide what a presidential paper is, and that uh, seizing those papers from a former president is, and I'm quoting here, unfounded and contrary to the law. Mm. So, you know, Trump, I've talked to Trump about this. He relied on that standard which Merrick Garland decided to toss out the window. Why? Well, because it's Donald Trump. Wow. Isn't that... Have you written this up? Have you done an op-ed piece on this? Oh, yeah. I've written, I've written several of them. I'll send them to you. Yeah, yeah. Send them over, because uh, I'd like to see that. So what does Jack Smith and Merrick Garland think they're going to get away with here? Well, I think... Uh, they have taken a position that is completely opposite to the Department of Justice, as well as the written law and the Presidential Records Act, that, uh, you know, they, they've changed course. Oh, no, uh, forget about Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump cannot keep classified documents. It's a national security risk. Look, um, if they wanted those documents back, the proper remedy... Uh, was not to raid his home with a phalanx of FBI agents, but to go to a federal court, as it happened in the Bill Clinton case. I mean, that's the precedent, right? You go to a federal judge and you say, uh, I'm making a motion here to compel the production of the documents, turn it over to the National Archives. Let an, a fair and impartial judge, if you can find one in America, uh, hash it out and decide. You don't criminalize a civil statute, but they decided to take the opposite course. So what's this business? Uh, I was talking to Dershowitz last night on the show. Uh, Trump had a conversation with a, a guy who's writing a book, and they're hanging, they, Jack Smith is hanging his hat on that as a violation of the Espionage Act. What is that all about? Yeah, apparently Trump had a conversation in which he admitted uh, that he had kept, uh, in particular, one classified document um, which dealt with uh, Iran. And, uh, you know, it's secret and I can't show it to you. Which mm-hmm. Jack Smith and Merrick Garland take as an admission that uh, Trump knew that he was engaging in wrongdoing. Well... Not under the Presidential Records Act, because remember what I said and what I've written for the last, what, nine months? That the Presidential Records Act gives a former president the right to maintain classified and non-classified documents. So, you know, the tape-recorded evidence where Trump admits that he has classified documents is negated uh, by the Presidential Records Act. Huh. So I don't understand. They don't. It, it, they, what kind of case do, do they have here? Well, they have a case based on uh, emotion. Mm. They, you know, they 
know, they showed all of these photographs, which were, you know, gratuitous. They were inflammatory, and essentially that was their intent. Oh, look at all these boxes. Well, I mean, if you go over to Obama's warehouse and, you know, photographed his uh, boxes of classified <laughs> documents, they'd look right. pretty much the same. <laughs> you, you know, if you go over and you photograph, you know, Joe Biden's garage next to his Corvette or over at the uh, Penn Biden Center, you're pretty much going to see the same thing. And, you know, George Bush, look, every president since Ronald Reagan has had this same problem where classified documents end up in the wrong place. Um, Now, it's always negotiated uh, between the National Archives, Department of Justice and the former president, except in the case of Donald Trump. Because, you know, he's a criminal, you know. So what, what's happening with the Biden case? I mean, Biden's got documents and boxes littered all the way from Chinatown in Washington, D.C. to uh, Wilmington, Delaware. So what's up with that case? I'm, I'm not hearing much on that. Well, you won't because the fix is in. Uh, you know, I mean, look, uh, Biden's you know, conciliary is the guy who picked each of the special counsels, one for Trump, one for Biden, one for Pence. You know, it goes on and on. Um, And they're biased in their own ways. And, you know, so the the problem here, frankly, is that presidents generally don't pack up their own boxes, right? Mm -hmm. It's under law. They're not even allowed to. It's performed by the GSA, the Government Services Administration which, um, as you likely know, is an utterly incompetent agency (laughs) that wouldn't know a classified document from a Where's Waldo picture, right? So no wonder all these papers get scattered in all the wrong places. I mean, Biden had more documents in more locations than Trump. But, you know, gee, that's perfectly fine, according to Merrick Garland, because, you know, that's my boss. But what was Biden? Biden has documents from the days when he was a senator and from the days he was a vice president. Uh, isn't that illegal? You can't take those documents. Yeah. I mean, what about that part? Well, and you put your finger, Larry, on something very important. He's not covered by the Presidential Records right. Act. Right. Right. Um, so those were in, uh, you know, the wrong places. And, and frankly, it's a crime. You know, it, it's not only a crime under the Espionage Act, 18 U.S.C. 793, but it's also uh, a violation of, of a, you know, 1924, withholding a document, retention of a classified record in an unauthorized place. There's about three other statutes. So, yeah, I mean, the, the law is different when you're the president. When you're the vice president, the same law does not apply. Yeah. Well, I'm hearing many people talking about that. That's really something. This whole thing is a bunch of baloney. That's what I think. It's a bunch of baloney. Well, Greg- it is, but it, it's, a, it's a very serious case that Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel, has put together. I mean, I've read it, and, you know, Trump's only defense is to cite, as I said, from day one, the day of the raid, the Presidential Records Act. That, that is his complete defense. All right. Greg Jarrett, uh, the trial of the century, folks. you got to read it, the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's fascinating. 
the political history there, William Jennings Bryan, Clarence Darrow, very, very important book. Greg, thanks, buddy. We appreciate it very much. Anytime, Larry. Thank you. All right. Take care. Folks, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And the other side of the break, we're going to talk to my pal John Carney of Breitbart News. You are not going to believe the wokeness of the Bank of America. It's the second biggest bank in the United States. They are the most woke institution you have ever heard. It's a staggering story. John Carney is going to tell about it. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Please stick around. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. We're talking with John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read. John, sorry we couldn't get through everything last night on the show. It was our technical screw-up. But there's this tremendous story up on Breitbart about Bank of America's wokeness. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. It's, I guess, the second largest bank in the United States. Monitoring your purchases, tracking your emissions, helping fund abortions, attacking your Second Amendment rights, enforcing environment, social, and governance metrics, ESG, to potentially lock individuals and businesses out of key banking services. So uh, walk through some of this stuff. I want to cover it with you if we got time. Um, this is a very bad story. I mean, this is the worst woke story I've seen. It's very bad. You're right, Larry. So one of the things that Bank of America has been doing in recent years is saying that they want to also take on the what they call societal responsibilities, as well as, you know, the normal, you know, financial and economic stuff that we would expect to see. And it really started with the environmental, social and governance stuff, particularly the environmental stuff. They put out a report just in September of last year. So this isn't, you know, they've been pretty open about this. It just hasn't gotten enough attention where they explain that they're not only trying to reduce their emissions, right? That's, we can see that, but that they're tracking their customers' emissions, particularly big corporate clients. They started with people like autos and energy companies, Hmm. and they are tracking their emissions so that they can they the way Bank of America thinks about it is this is the emissions they are financing and they want to reduce those over the course of the next couple decades to net zero as well and you know they use very Orwellian language they say they want to inspire and enable customers to do this but of course when the second largest bank in the country is telling you they're tracking your emissions what's going to happen right it means that you say okay my financing will be easier to obtain if I have lower emissions. And frankly, this is should be really troubling to people like you and I who believe that we really need to unleash America's energy capabilities. Hmm. If you have a bank like Bank of America saying, we're not really on board with that, it doesn't matter if we, you know, we get the permits out if you can't get financing to build the infrastructure needed to extract oil and natural gas out of the ground. And that's that's the really troubling thing. It used to be that companies spent a lot of money trying to figure out, you know, on on consumers research. Right. Which is, by the way, the people who put this research together for us 
Will Held, who's the executive director of a group called Consumers Research. I mentioned them last night on TV. I came across them when they were run by Stan Evans decades mm-hmm. ago, a conservative stalwart. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, so, but companies used to spend a lot of money to figure out what do our customers want? Here, we have something very different. It's them saying, they, they basically evaluated, what do we want to make our customers do? And that's what's happening here. So they're so yes, they they are say they're going to track things like the emissions of their customers. They're they're worried about you know how much emissions cows put out. So they they want you know to fund plant based you know meat alternatives. And then I think particularly uh, one of the most shocking things that came out was this idea that they are funding travel expenses for their employees in states that have uh, put on, you know, more humane, restrictive laws on when you can terminate an unborn child's life. Uh, they're going to help you travel to a state that has that hasn't enacted these reforms yet. Mm. And I think for, for a lot of us, you know, one of these things would be bad enough. Seeing all of them together is really troubling because it's it looks like Bank of America is taking sides in a culture war mm-hmm. that and frankly if i was the board of bank of america i would want to talk to brian moynihan and say hey why are we taking why are we declaring ourselves on one side of this culture war it is not working out for companies like you know anheuser-busch InBev, and InBev, who who is the you know makes bud light the sales have plunged it's not working out for target they've mm-hmm. suffered tremendously if I were the board of Bank of America or the shareholders, I would demand some explanation about, you know, what level are these decisions being made? Who's okaying them? You know, we, there's some great people on the board of Bank of America. I don't think that they're aware of all of this, frankly. And I think they, they should start asking questions and pushing back on it. John Carney, <clears throat> reading from this uh, Breitbart story, um, Breitbart uh, has a DEI training program, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, uh, where employees are lectured that the United States is a racist nation that is built on white supremacy, and in particular, white employees are instructed to confront their, quote, white privilege. Really? This is a bank? Really? (laughs) Right. So this is pretty radical. Um, yeah, the Bank of America had been, you know, this, it's almost like a, you know, communist re-education program, frankly, yes, like right, yes. at, where they're doing struggle sessions and they talk about decolonizing your, your mind, seeding power to people of color. It's basically critical race theory mm. in, you know, being implemented at a corporate level for employees. And, or I don't want to say for employees. I want to say like upon employees. And it is, you know, I mean, they tell you crazy things like that, that, that toddlers are racists and that, you know, that this needs to start at a, you know, very young age. And the, uh, look, uh, again, I don't think, you know, the, one of the things that's happened is that the middle management of a lot of companies across America have you know, they came out of these elite colleges. They have all these radical mm. left ideas. Yep. And so when, so and they're hiring in these consultants to yep. preach this stuff to people. And I don't all think, right. you know, people realize how crazy it's really gotten. All right. Brian Moynihan is the
the CEO. Holy cow, what a story. John Carney of Breitbart. Thank you, John. Appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a break. Other side, my great friend Kevin Hassett, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. We're going to talk about Biden's economy. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We've got Kevin Hassett, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution, and uh, his book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. I call it the most important book of the 21st century, which... I still believe it is. Uh, Kevin, thank you, buddy, for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here, Larry. Kevin, one thing we didn't get to on the show last night is the threat of a um, Teamsters strike. And Mm -hmm. I know you've been monitoring this, and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. You know, because I think that it's the kind of thing that could toss us immediately into recession. Because... Uh, you know, some backstory. Uh, the Teamsters had a really, really bad contract with uh, the railroads, and they wanted to strike to improve, you know, basically their working conditions. Like, for example, they only got like one sick day a year. You know, and you can understand that you need like workers to show up if you're going to be running a train, but still. Like, it was really kind of brutal working conditions. And so they were going to strike the railroads. But then President Biden and the Democrats used the authority that the government has over railroads to, you know, basically prohibit the Teamsters from having a strike hmm. and and then force them to accept, you know, a really crappy uh, contract. You know, if if we were in, in a world where a Republican administration did that to the unions, then it would be front page news. But probably most of your listeners don't even remember mm-hmm. this happened last year. Well, so now the Teamsters, you know, have, uh, you know, a, a slightly better contract, actually, with, with UPS. Uh, but they, you know, organize basically all the drivers and package handlers for UPS. And they've got strong demands to increase wages and, and improve working conditions and treat, like, new drivers better and so on. If you, if you look at their list of demands, you know, it's the kind of thing that that's really not super unreasonable. And the fact is that UPS probably kind of knows that the union has all the leverage right now and, and wants to concede on that stuff. But my people are telling me that even if UPS were kind of to give the unions all their demands, the unions want to strike because they want to sort of prove that they still can. Mm. You know, the the fact that the Democrats stepped in front of them before and wouldn't let them basically fight for their rights as workers, which is like, you know, classic Democrats, they claim they're the party of workers, but then when the workers need their help, they're not there for them. Mm. And and so so I think that to sort of prove to Joe Biden that they're still in control of their own destiny. I hear there's going to be a strike. Um, there's going to be a vote this week, uh, mm. and the strike will start August 1st. And, and let me tell you, um, you know, UPS moves, gosh, you know, it was about 10% mm. of, of America's stuff around. And, and, and so if all of a sudden UPS is shut down, then, you know, you're going to have a real, like you talk about supply disruption. You know, mm. they, during COVID, these guys were running the whole time. Uh, and if you shut them down, then you're looking at something that's really, really catastrophic for the economy. You know, I don't 
I don't think I've seen anything about this in the papers. Yeah, you know, I think that part of it is, that first, if, if you Google it, you will see stuff about this. And everybody yeah. is, and, you know, if you Google Teamster Strike, then you'll find some articles about it. But mm. the point is just that, that because the backstory is the Democrats screwed workers, then, you know, the mainstream media doesn't really want to cover this story. Mm. You know, they like unless they can blame Donald Trump for the Teamster Strike, right, they have to cover it. They have to cover it. Because he had secret documents. <laughs> Is it just UPS, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because thinking... they have a contract. They have a contract with UPS that is, expires at the end of July. FedEx and, so they, is... and, and they don't. Yeah, FedEx is not unionized. That's right. I was just going to say uh, uh, FedEx is not unionized. So it, it, it's interesting, by the way, because I know that you love like esoteric economic history. So <laughs> I do. The, the, but but it turns out that that basically UPS grew up as like a trucking company, mm-hmm. and FedEx grew up as an an airline. Yeah, yeah. And because they grew up like with that as being their original identity, then they're regulated completely differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. That's well, Fred Fred Smith took a lot of heat down through the years, but he kept his non-unionized position. So, yeah, right. Uh, He's probably the best CEO you know, in our lifetimes. Absolutely. 100%. Glad to hear you say that. I love the guy. I know him very, very, very well. He has taught me a lot about what I would call practical day-to-day business economics. The guy's an absolute genius. Yeah, and, and with me, like when Fred checks in with me every now and then, uh, yeah. it's because he's seeing something in the economic data that he wants to know if I'm seeing it too. But, you know, he's, he's like on ground zero. Right? That's right. No, that's exactly yeah, right. He's stuff before everybody else. He yeah. should start a hedge fund. <laughs> and, and no, no, I mean, we brought him into the Oval constantly to brief oh. Trump on, on things, and he was always uh, terrific. And I think, I think his uh, term paper, his thesis paper – on setting up FedEx, I got a C at Yale or something like that. <laughs> they didn't, you can't, you'll never be able to do this. Absolutely. So, Kevin, are we in some kind of slow mo recession right now? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's been. If, if you look at it, manufacturing, especially outside of like the you know energy transition stuff, is down. Um, the average hourly earnings have declined twenty five months in a row. Uh, but consumption has stayed reasonably strong. GDP now is going to be 2% in the second quarter. Mm. So it's, God, honest truth, it's one of the weirdest economies I've ever seen. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a recession, but it's not a recession, at least so far. But, you know, uh, you and I, uh, when we were back at the White House, started to watch these early indicators like Warren Act warnings, which is when the companies have to give you 60 days notice if they're going to have large scale layoffs. Mm-hmm. And the Challenger report, which is, you know, companies saying that they're going to have layoffs and the layoff uh, data. I, I, you and I went over it on the show yesterday is really skyrocketing, sadly. And so that there are a lot of planned layoffs over the next couple of months. And initial claims are already above the sort of borderline of 250. Add to that um, a, a Teamster strike. Uh, then, yeah, I think you're, we finally have pushed it over the edge. And, and, and it actually, you know, be, being cynical about the way 
the media covers things right. Like as soon as we really do like undeniably have a recession, I still think we had one last year when we had two negative quarters, then the whole story is going to be like, well, it's not Biden's fault that we're having a recession. It's not Biden's fault that we're having a recession, right? It's not the fact that he gave us inflation with all the spending. You know, he's even out there lying and saying that he's reduced the deficit, right? It's yeah. just crazy. No, it's, uh, but, it's a but, bottomless, bottomless Pinocchio is what the Wall, so, is so, what the Washington so Post called it. So here's my here's my prediction, Larry, and we'll we'll talk about it in August. My my prediction is that the Teamster strike will happen, mm. and then everybody in the media will cover it because they'll blame the Teamsters for the recession, not Joe Biden. But inflation is the cruelest tax of all, and inflation is driving down real wages. I mean, Kevin, Wall, you see Wall Street economists say that people are consumers are living off their COVID savings. Now mm-hmm. that game has to run out at some point. Oh, that that game is over. Uh, you, you know, I, I've done. You remember my uh, assistant, Kale, who worked so closely yeah. in the White House. Yeah, you know, he did some really careful calculations of when the COVID savings are going to be gone, and it's like now there's no COVID savings left. And, yeah. and so, if you think that consumption has been boosted by the money people had left over from the COVID uh, welfare, well, that's probably true. But that's done. And so, with real wages down. Um, then, you know, real consumption has to start to come down or, you know, people will get 10 more credit cards, <laughs> but sooner or later that game's over. That right? game's and, over too. Yeah. And, and I noticed business investment, uh, is, uh, down along with the manufacturing numbers. That's a very bad sign. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, it's kind of a slow-mo recession, but this Teamster story that you're uh, hatching is very, very important. And uh, you're way ahead of the curve on that, so we're going to have to watch the Teamsters. Anyway, Kevin Hassett, just about the smartest guy I know. And the book, folks, is The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. It's a very important book in light of Bidenomics and Bidenflation and all the rest of it. Kevin, buddy, thank you. Appreciate it. Best yep. to Christy. Take care. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, Gordon Chang's going to come on. What is up with this? China is going to build a spy facility in Cuba, which is 90 miles off of Florida, all right? And the Biden administration is doing nothing about it, and they won't even admit it. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Gordon Chang on China in Cuba next up. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're bringing in Gordon Chang. Senior fellow with the Gatestone Institute, author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War and The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon is a phenomenal China expert. Gordon, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Uh, big story in the Wall Street Journal, Cuba to host secret Chinese spy base focusing on U.S. I'll just read you the first line. China and Cuba have reached the secret agreement for China to establish an elect, uh, electronic eavesdropping facility on the island of Cuba and a brash new geopolitical challenge by Beijing to the U.S. That according to U.S. officials. Now, Gordon, as you may know, Kirby, John Kirby was asked about this in a uh, press conference and, and sort of dodged the whole thing, but it sounds like it's pretty real to me. What do you know about it? Well, Larry, um, John Kirby's denial was certainly uh, technical and tortuous. Um, And I think the reason is that Kirby might actually be telling the truth. 
But I do believe that Kirby is trying to mislead and deceive the American public with the truth. Because there have been reports, and these have been out there for years, Larry, that the Chinese are already in Cuba with mm. listening posts for signals mm. intelligence, especially at the Lourdes facility, which was perhaps the largest Soviet listening post outside the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And there are also reports, Larry, that the Chinese are at two other locations in Cuba with signals intelligence, um, and that would be Bayucal and Santiago, Santiago de Cuba. Mm. So um, although Kirby may have been telling the truth that, there no, that there's no new facilities, Kirby is probably trying to um, put us off the trail. Well, they're saying that um, China has agreed to pay Cuba several billion dollars to allow it to build a new, a, a new eavesdropping station and that the two countries have reached an agreement in principle. I mean, I, I think the question here, Gordon, is, okay, so this is real. Uh, it's the reality. What are we going to do about it? And, I mean, it's sort of, you know, you come on the TV show, and, and I always ask you this. It's like, what is Biden doing about the China threat in general? I mean, he talks about them. Uh, you know, he was at the G7 meeting in Singapore, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're, we, have a, we have competition with China. No, we don't. I mean, we have competition with Germany. China's our adversary. They want to dominate. And here they are, you know, building up their eavesdropping in Cuba, which is whatever, 90 or 100 miles from Florida. What, what are they going to do about it, Gordon? Well, first of all, um, the United States has now diplomatic relations with Cuba. And this seems to me that we always have said where the Obama administration said, look, you know, we're going to get leverage over the Castro regime. Well, if that's the case. Um, then let's now use that leverage. And if we can't use that leverage, then let's get out of Cuba. But the other thing, Larry, and, and this I think is a broader question, um, China is collecting much more intelligence about the United States directly from American soil. They do this in a number of different ways, and this is our country, and we can stop this. So these are things that we need to do. If we show China that we're serious about protecting our information, then maybe we'll be able to get somewhere. But so far, I believe that Beijing looks at us and says, well, they're not even protecting intelligence gathering on their own soil, so why don't we go ahead with Cuba? And that is the fundamental problem with regard to China these days. What about the balloon, the famous balloon? I mean, that was an intel gathering uh, exercise. Yes. Well, you know, about the balloon, um, and, and this is this is another case where the Biden administration has been downplaying things. Even, you know, with regard to this Wall Street Journal report uh, on the Cuba facility, um, even Andrea Mitchell of NBC News hmm. has a story today which talks about is then the headline is, is the Biden administration downplaying the threat from China? And the report itself is quite damning when you uh, go through it all. And so, really, that's the same thing with the spy balloon, because uh, Biden last month at the G7 in Japan called it that silly balloon. Mm. But we are starting to understand that that silly balloon was seeing if China could disrupt our command and control signals to our 
um, nuclear ballistic missile submarines um, to our um, strategic B-2 bombers. And that really means that China's thinking of a first strike uh, with its nuclear weapons on the United States. So that's not silly, at least in my vocabulary. Uh, going back to this Wall Street Journal story, last month President Biden sent CIA Director William Burns on a secret trip to Beijing and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held talks with a top Chinese official in Vienna. Uh, do you know anything about that? Well, um, Wang Yi is that official that Jake Sullivan met, and they and they talked for 10 hours. Um, mm. Really, what we're seeing is the Biden administration working very hard, very ardently to establish communication lines with China. And it is pleading. Um, and Beijing is enjoying this because they will view, for instance, um, Secretary of State Blinken going to Beijing as a capitulation by the United States. Remember, right after the spy balloon incident, um, Blinken postponed his trip to Beijing, which had been um, on the docket uh, for February. And um, now Blinken's uh, State Department is leaking that uh, that trip has now been put back on. Beijing is denying that they have invited Blinken. And this is just making the United States look like a vassal. Um, and and I, China is just, of course, exploiting that. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why Biden foreign policy is in collapse around the world. It's not because the Chinese are particularly effective with their statecraft. It's because Biden is failing region by region, incident by incident. It's an incoherent policy. I mean, there's no, there's no main driving themes like a Reagan had or like Trump did with China. It's incoherent. Um, you know, at that G7 meeting, again, uh, Biden talked about a thaw in China relations. And then within hours, the Chinese came back and said there is no thaw. And then you had the other episode. I think we talked about this on the TV show uh Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who's not the worst of the Biden crowd, but Austin wants to meet with the Chinese defense minister, and the Chinese said, no, no, we're not going to meet. And it's like they're humiliating us on the world stage. Yes, Lloyd Austin was humiliated at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. Um, He went over and tried to shake the hand of uh, uh, Li Shang-Fu, the Chinese defense minister, and they had a friendly interaction for a couple moments Um, But this was wrong on the part of the United States because of two things. First of all, uh, General Lee, the defense minister, is under U.S. sanctions. And so we should not be talking to him full stop. But also because really what we have seen is just after um, and at the same time of Lloyd Austin's uh, uh, encounter in Singapore, we had the May 26 um, dangerous intercept of the U.S. Air Force RC-135 in international airspace over the South China Sea. And then the May 30 um, incident in um, the Taiwan Straits with our Arleigh Burke destroyer. So really what we're happening is, you know, we try to talk to China and China engages in these extremely dangerous intercepts. Mm. You know, the other thing, Gordon, I mean, I think everybody knows China is fixing to invade Taiwan at some point. And the question is, what are we doing about it? I don't hear anything. I mean... Biden talk, he doesn't, never talks about it directly. I mean, to me, that's going to be the biggest pressure point. They wanted to, the Chinese want Taiwan. And um, 
when, whether it's 2025 or 2027, I don't know. Maybe you have a sense of that. But what are we doing about that? Not enough. Um, it's very clear that China is threatening an invasion of Taiwan. And in these types of circumstances, um, we should be um, helping Taiwan on an emergency basis. And on an emergency basis, we should be stockpiling our own weapons. I mean, recent war games, it's shown that in a battle with China, the United States runs out of a critical type of munition, which is um, uh, anti-cruise missiles, um, within days. Mm. Now, some people say days, some people say within one week. The point is, this is something, this is is the type of weapon that will be uh, the prominent one on the battlefield. The Chinese will use them, we'll use them, but we'll just run out in a very short period. And we are not at a point where we, on an emergency basis, are building up our stocks of that and other critical munitions. I just don't understand why Biden and his group doesn't, at least at the level of rhetoric, Gordon. I mean, you know, go back. Donald Trump was the first president to really ring the bell about the Chinese threat. And he was relentless about that. And if you go back even further, you know, remember what Reagan, Reagan, you know, calling Russia the evil empire and so forth. The Bidens just don't seem to have the backbone to do that sort of thing. Well, first of all, um, we have to go back to Robert Gates's 2014 memoir. Gates was Mm -hmm. the former defense secretary in the Bush and Obama administrations where he wrote that uh, Biden has been wrong on nearly every foreign policy and national security yeah. matter of the last four decades. And I think yeah. that that's right. All right. Gordon Chang, nobody knows this story better than you do. Thanks for your time today on the weekend. I appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, guess what? We're going to do some stock market work. Stock's up for the fourth straight week. It's an interesting story. I'm Cudlow. Stick with us. Much more to come. It's the Larry Cudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Cudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you this weekend, as always. By the way, join us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't make it at 4, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And here, you can get us uh, on the Internet. You can live stream us, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You hear us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and even the Milky Way, whatever that happens to be. Anyway, let's do some stock market work, as always. We have two distinguished guests. David Bonson is the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. He's the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. He's got a No Free Lunch video series. And Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President Investments at Morgan Stanley, two good friends of mine. David, what's the name of your new book? It's called Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life, and it's a big uh, economic and theological defense of work. Defense of work. Jim LeCamp, you're in favor of work, aren't you? 
<laughs> yeah, I've, I've decided to be kind of a contrarian, and um, I still believe in hard work and bootstraps and all that. It's good to hear Bonson on this work thing, because I know, you know, he lives a very good lifestyle. He takes a lot of vacations and time off. <clears throat> his home's on the East Coast and the West Coast, so he's recommitting himself to work, and I wrote a blurb for this. When's this book coming out, David? It doesn't come out till February. I just submitted the manuscript. You know how that goes. The publisher has it. My wife will be thrilled to know uh, your version of my lifestyle because uh, she spent 22 years telling me that maybe I ought to work a little less than the 16 hours a day and 360 days a year I work. But I love your impression there, Larry. I know, 24-7, 24-7. Anyway, gentlemen, uh Start with you, Jim LeCamp. This is the fourth straight week of an S&P gain. Stock market, uh, let's see, year-to-date, the S&P is up 12%. Were you in a new bull market, Jim LeCamp? You know, this is why you have to watch the technicals, because the fundamentals aren't they still aren't backing up the kind of move that we've seen in the market. But you have to respect the market itself. You have to watch the market action itself. There's been some rotation. We've seen some movement into the small caps. We're seeing uh, breadth start to broaden out. And we're seeing uh, names like uh, the energy stocks start to start to move. So uh, even if the fundamentals don't back it up, and they don't, uh, you, you still have to say, okay, Maybe I'm wrong, or maybe there are other reasons the market is moving. Uh, and there could be any number of reasons why the market is moving. For instance, we're seeing a sharp decline in inflation in China and a, a, a very sharp decline in their economy. That could mean uh, a weakening of the yuan. That would suggest uh, they would export deflation around the world, and that would be a boon for our technology stocks, which have rallied. We have uh, uh, some group leadership uh, now with the artificial intelligence and, again, the, the, the strength across the market. All that being said, you gotta, you still have to be careful. And uh, there's three reasons. A, uh, we're, we're, we're overbought. I mean, we're more than two standard deviations away from the 50-day moving average. B, we're in that seasonal time frame, uh, that May through October, where we usually do get – uh, more volatility in the stock market, and and see um, earnings uh, again. The, the fundamentals don't support it. Earnings uh, are are in decline still, and it's really hard to argue at uh, 21 times anybody's expectations of earnings that you've got a tremendous amount of upside here. So we're kind of running a balanced portfolio now um, and and trying to be a little nimble here right. because uh, you have this juxtaposition All of right. the fundamentals and technicals. Dave Bonson, what you think about this story? Bull market or continued bear market? I mean, it's funny. Everyone talking about the most anticipated heralded recession ever, but we haven't seen it yet. We could talk about that, but that um, goes along with worries about the stock market. What do you think? Well, I think for listeners, I'll explain real quickly that when you talk about the S&P 500, you know, most of the time we're talking about it being what's called cap-weighted, where the biggest companies like Apple and Google are the biggest part of the index. And so that's just kind of what people mean by it. But then there's what they call even-weighted, where you just take all 500 companies and divide them evenly. Well, here's the thing. The cap-weighted 
has outperformed the even weighted mm. by the most since 2020, since COVID. Um, you have 10 companies that had been driving everything all year. And in the last week and a half, that started to change. And Jim referred to this, small caps, an increasing breadth. Um, a week ago, Friday, we had, uh, I think it was a 700-point move in the Dow, and you had 11 gainers in the market for every one decliner. That's really big breadth. So, yeah, the market's giving a different signal. Uh, It's funny. If we end up getting a recession, let's say, in uh, early 24, I'm wondering if it's the same recession that people were talking about in 21, or does it count as a different recession? Because if you predict a recession and it comes three years later, I don't really think that counts. That's (laughs) that's an entirely different thing altogether. So I'm in my view, Larry, I've said on your show many times, I think we get a recession, and it's like the 2002 recession after dot-com blew up and after 9-11 it'll be a mild short recession that most of the country doesn't know happened Hmm. um but i think i think the fed has acted recklessly and i think what jim just said a moment ago is the most important global macroeconomic story of the day china exporting deflation last time we had an asian economic powerhouse export deflation all over the world uh, the 1990s were a pretty good decade for the United States. So that's a bullish point, you're saying. It it might be bearish for China, but it's bullish for us. The problem is is that it's selectively bullish. People will not be able to just buy the S&P at 20 times earnings and make mm-hmm. money. It will be it will be selective, and, and obviously I'm talking my book because that's what we do is try to be more selective. You know, Jim LeCamp, it's just interesting looking at sectors in the stock market. The SOX index, the chips, Mm -hmm. year-to-date up 39%. The S&P 500 home builders, year-to-date up 31%. And the S&P retailing, year-to-date up 19.5%. Dow Transport's less so, but they're up 6.4%. I'm looking at those as economic indicators. Again, with respect to the recession story, mm-hmm. those groups are talking about a strong economy, basically. Socks, chips, homes, retailers, and, and again, to a lesser extent, transports. But those things seem to say the economy is going to be just fine. Well, the the chips, it's an interesting point you bring up there, because the chips and the home builders are both plays on the idea that interest rates are going to come down. Technology tends to do better in a falling rate environment, and certainly home builders do. And if you look at the home builder, uh, the inventories out there, there is room for home building. Now, are they calls for a strong economy? That's hard to say, because if you had that, then you would see copper prices doing a little better. They've come back up a little bit, but the commodity, the CRB commodity index hasn't broken out. And energy is kind of bouncing along the bottom, and I'm bullish on energy here, but you're not seeing a strong move yet. So you're not seeing confirmation across the board. You're not seeing a plurality of economic improvement um, indicators all all signaling the same thing. Uh, That said, uh, I I do think that Wall Street is counting on interest rates coming down. The yield curve is still uh, very inverted. 
Uh, most, uh, if you look at the Fed funds futures, uh, they 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 suggest a hike in in July and then maybe a fall. You know, by the by the beginning of next year. So I think more than economic strength, it's a play on falling interest rates. Mm. And you could even argue if you're going to play on falling interest rates, that's a play on uh, continued economic weakness. Dave Bonson, the best performing area that I can find year to date is Bitcoin, up 59.9%. You loading up on Bitcoin? (laughs) <laughs> well, as you know, I'm not. But we, we, but we have to, we have to be clear on the numbers. You know, it, when something is down still 59 percent from where it was a little over a year ago, the law of uh, small numbers can allow those percentages to move up. You know, what's interesting, Larry. All that move came in like the first six weeks of the year. It's kind yeah. of flat yeah. for the last three or four months. But, but you know, we're in the business of evaluating cash flows and internal rates of return. And I don't know if Bitcoin is going to zero or a hundred thousand. Um, I do know that the Beanie Babies don't trade very much anymore, and I don't see Bitcoin as having any more value than Beanie Babies. What I think is a a really interesting thing right now is with this economic strength and weakness debate um, that we forget kind of option C. Not that the economy gets a lot stronger, that the economy gets a lot weaker, recessionary, but what about just this ongoing, flattish 1% growth? On one hand, I think it's politically terrible. I think it's culturally awful for our country. It exacerbates divides and divisions. And yet, it seems to me to be the most likely economic scenario. That's what the bond market on the longer end of the curve is priced for most of my adult lifetime, Mm. that we just simply aren't getting 5-6% yields on the 10 and the 30, because no one thinks we're going to get real growth. That, it, that makes it worthwhile. And I just don't understand why more people aren't talking about no, getting I back to 3 to 4% real GDP growth. That's a great point. You know, uh, you had in 21, uh, the economy grew uh, close to 6%. So you had your COVID recovery. Uh, and you also had a lot of stimulus from fiscal and monetary policy. In 22, the economy was 0.9%. I'm measuring fourth over fourth here. Uh, the first quarter of 23 was a lousy 1.3%. Uh, I don't know, second quarter is going to be 1% or 2%. Um, you, but it's politically, I mean, it's, that's Joe Biden's, uh, one of the polls, a good poll came out last week. The guys have got a, 30, a 32% approval rating on the economy, something like that, 32 33% approval on the economy. And people are not happy. You know, all the polls show that folks are not happy about this. And in some sense, Jim LeCamp, you know, bull versus bear, how about this? The stock market's just bobbing around. You know, it seems like it's, in a sense, directionless. I know it's up the last four weeks. It was down before that. It started the year strong. Then it kind of got slumpy. Last year, of course, was a very bad year. It's almost the same, this, the long-term rates. I want to talk about the Fed in, this, in the second segment, but long, you know, rates are bobbing around, the stock market's bobbing around, mm-hmm. and the economy's bobbing around not far from the bottom. It's a very strange stagnation kind of uh, situation. Well, the one term you two didn't use, but you did describe perfectly, 
was malaise. Yeah. And we haven't heard that yeah. phrase since yeah. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And how interesting is that we have the most Jimmy Carter-ish president that we've had since Jimmy Carter right now. And if you look at the, the time frame um, that Jimmy Carter was part of, it was several bad economic presidents in a row, really. It was LBJ, Nixon, Ford, and then Carter. You had mm-hmm. a stock market in that time frame that bounced all over the place mm. and and led up to runaway inflation as well. And, and now that we're not in this 40-year bull market in bonds that we had from 1982 to about a year and a half ago, uh, you may see more of a stock market that bounces around like you just described, Larry. You may see a market that is more like the 68 to 82 market than what we've seen in the 40 years uh, post-1982. And in which case, uh, sector selection and stock selection is going to be extremely important. Mm. That's a good point, the malaise point. We add that, you're right, uh, the Dow is bobbing around a 1,000 but couldn't break through. Reagan comes in, by the way, during the Reagan years, uh, stock market was up 12-fold. Pretty cool yeah. stuff. Anyway, we'll take a break. David Bonson of the Bonson Group and Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with David Bonson, founder of the Bonson Group, and Jim LeCamp of uh, Morgan Stanley. David Bonson has a new book coming out, but he won't tell us the title of it. Does it have a title? Full-time work and the meaning of life. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it had a title. That's good. Jim LeCamp, you ever ever written a book? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I did those newsletters for so long that people asked me to write a book, and I've, I've got pages and pages of stuff written, uh, but I have not completed it. And everybody that has written one, uh, and David, maybe you can give me some advice on this, says don't. <laughs> I've written a couple. Uh, I guess I've written three. Um, it's a pain in the ass. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> But I'll tell you this, worse than writing it is selling it. Selling yes. it is such I mean, David, what do you think? Selling a book is a really hard thing to do. Well, you know, it's funny. My first book was on the financial crisis, and I, uh, Jim may not know this. I was a managing director at Morgan Stanley for 10 years, and I, I was there through the financial crisis. And I thought it was like this really fascinating book. My perspective was very different than a lot of people's on the financial crisis, but I was a no-name author, and and uh, I worked so hard to get that book sold. Of course, I had to leave Morgan Stanley before I could actually publish the book, but <laughs> it came out, and, and it did really well. But you're right, Larry. You work so hard, and then when another book comes out, it's like you're starting all over. You know, yeah. you don't get to just go, yeah, I think Hillary Clinton sold like 6 million copies of one book and then mm. sold 200,000 of the next book. You just kind of... Mm. It's a lot of work. Yeah, 200,000. Uh, 199,999 were sold through the Clinton Foundation. But anyway, let's yeah. not go there. Um, <laughs> and uh, David brings up an interesting point. If you're working for a, a, a big firm, which I do, uh, the book that, that you could get cleared is a quite quite a different book than what you would write if you didn't work for a big firm. And so... 
part of me uh, has has said, you know, maybe when I retire, if I ever do retire, that that would really be the better time to write a book. Yeah, better time to write a book. Um, Jim LeCamp, what's the interest rate outlook? What's your Fed outlook? One more hike probably in July, and after that, nothing uh, for the rest of the year and cuts probably in January. So nothing, they will pause next week? Is that the inference? Yeah, nothing next week. Um, they, they, they'll, they'll use language that doesn't suggest that it's a pivot. It's just a wait and see. Uh, and I, I think you'll see another hike uh, because inflation has really been a lot stickier than anybody thought it would be. And uh, so, I, and 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 they're they're going to have to deal with some of the commodity prices that have uh, remained very sticky as well. So I think a quarter of a point hike in July, and that's it. Uh, David, ten-year um, note is three seventy-four. It's kind of bobbed around year to date. It's down fourteen basis points. I think it got as low as three thirty something. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Where's that going, do you think? Well, if you're talking about, you know, three to five years out, it's going back to 2%, I hate to say. Uh, but in the, in, in the short term, I think it's going to stay in the three uh, three and a half range. Mm-hmm. And all of that is on the theme that we were all three talking about before the break. Uh, you use the term stagnation, and, and, and Jim was talking about the kind of 1966 to 81 period in the stock market. The term I use with clients all the time, I've actually written a lot about, is Japanification. Mm. And I just think mm-hmm. at, the long end of our, at the long end of our bond curve, we're not doing yield curve control. Okay? They stopped quantitative easing. They've been doing quantitative tightening. And all four times now, four times since 2008 that we stopped quantitative easing, bond yields went lower, not higher, on the long end. Yeah, i tell you one thing. If you, if you buy the Milton Friedman M2... If you buy it, rates are coming down a lot. It's just a fascinating thing. Dave Bonson, thank you, buddy. Jim LeCamp, many thanks. Appreciate it. Folks, quick break. Now to the side, we're going to do some money and politics with the great Liz Peak and the great Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back in a bit. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow, we're going to talk some money and politics, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've got Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We've got Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and this excellent radio show. It is called More Money. It follows this show and many stations. So welcome back. Steve Moore, are you loving this radio show? How are you doing on that radio show? Are you enjoying it? <laughs> you know, radio is wonderful, and it's a great way to communicate people, so I have a blast with it. I don't get three hours. I get one, but it's just so much fun. And you know what I love to do, Larry, is take – I love to take calls from the listeners because they have – you know, you learn a lot from, you know, what just average Americans say. It's, it's why I've always said Rush Limbaugh always saw what was happening in American politics before anyone else because – you listen to real people every day. Have you had Liz peak on your show? You know, she's very smart. <laughs> you know, I, I can't have Liz on because <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I do a radio show every Saturday. But, Liz, one of these days I want to have you on for sure. Oh, uh, that'd be fun. Liz Peake. Liz Peake, the great Liz Peake. Liz Peake, I'm going to ask you a question. I want both of you to weigh in this. There's a, 
There's a story, a big story in the New York Post. Uh, John Katsimatidis, who owns WABC Radio, uh, is looking at purchasing CNN. All right. Now, mindful that John may be listening to this show, he often does, and so does Margot, his wonderful wife, who uh-huh. actually runs everything. But um, let's speak. Um, John Katsimatidis turned around WABC Radio. It's the most influential talk radio show now in the country, and the ratings have soared and all the rest of it. Do you think he should buy CNN? Absolutely. Uh, I think CNN, look, I think there is room for another uh, uh, news organization that caters to people on the right. After all, at this moment, it's really... Fox News, and then secondarily Newsmax, and I say secondarily just because their audience is much, much smaller. But look, competition's good, and, you know, I I would hate to see CNN go back to being another sort of left-wing hub, just like it was before Chris Licht, and uh, I think it'd be terrific. I I hope he does. You know, Steve, the one problem, I don't, I can't recall, I mean, John Katsutidis is a very dear, dear friend, he and Margot, and we have dinner together all the time. But the infrastructure there is so left-wing. I mean, you go down, not only the hosts are left-wing, but the you know senior producers, executive producers, bookers. I mean, the whole place is a left-wing rat's nest. You'd have to fire 90% of the people. And, I mean, I think this John Licht, I, I don't, uh, Chris Licht, I don't know him. Uh, I know that John Malone is kind of the brains behind the operation. Yep. Malone is yep. a right of center guy. He's yep. a good guy. Yep. But, you know, he tried. I mean, even, you know, they put the Donald Trump uh, town hall debate on. They had whatever, three and a half million people. And that the, the place went berserk internally, right? They they killed him for that. And that's, I think, the biggest. Re- and then it went back to, I mean, <laughs> three, what do they get? Three, four hundred thousand people. I mean, I hate to say it, but my my show on, on Fox Business beats CNN most of the time. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying, I think John yeah. Cat is a brilliant guy, and he succeeds at everything he does. But he'd have to go into that rat's nest. So I have a couple observations. I did see that story, and I kind of jumped out of my chair in joy when <laughs> when I read it um, because a couple things. I mean, one is. You know, Ted Turner was a genius, and Ted mm-hmm. Turner was the founder of CNN. And what was that? Probably 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and it was the first kind of cable all-news network. And back in the day, and look, Ted Turner was a liberal, too, but it was a news station. Mm-hmm. And it's something we all tuned in when there was some world to know what mm-hmm. was going on. And, I, I didn't, you know, in fact, does a lot of that, but it has a conservative, you know, uh, kind of persuasion and and msnbc you can't watch that because it's so left-wing i do think that there is a real market for a real you know just straight news channel mm-hmm. and and i think it'd be great to 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 hold cnn back i did my penance as you know larry after trump was elected oh yes jeff, jeff zucker called me and offered me a lot of money because they, they had all the hillary clinton people lined up. they didn't have any trump people and so i was there foil every night where by the way for two years people forget about this for two straight years liz every single night i'm not exaggerating every single night you know what cover the story they talked about every night the russia collusion story. russia gate yeah. 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 yeah yeah it's amazing when you think back did they ever apologize did they ever say hey we screwed up <laughs> 
really. Uh, they were so infatuated with that story. So what you do if John Katsimides were to take it over, you fire everybody. I mean, you yes, fire. That's what you have to do. And you rebuild the place. And, and look, if there's a guy who can who knows news, who knows business, who knows how to take a, you know, uh, something that is in bankruptcy and make it profitable, it's John Katsimides. So I love this story. You're gonna have to fire all those people. I mean, it, I mean, some he'd be kind of cool, actually. And the hosts, you're gonna get rid of the hosts. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. they haven't. I haven't seen any, Liz. I haven't seen any perceptible change uh, since that uh, Chris Lick took over. I haven't seen anything. I mean, they they downgraded a couple of hosts, but they still, you know. I mean, it's it is, has it changed in the last year? I don't I, see it. I, I would say only in this way. Um, I occasionally have watched CNN in the last year looking for that. Mm-hmm. And occasionally they actually have a news story without editorial bias. And oh. that sounds sort of, yeah, that sounds like, oh. well, oh, of gotcha. course they do. But in fact, they don't always. And if you watch MSNBC, there's almost never a news story that doesn't yeah. have a political uh, right. tint to it. So. I actually think uh, my perception is some of the hosts on CNN have tried to be a little more moderate. They don't immediately jump to everything being the fault of Republicans, and those, in particular the MAGA Republicans. They're not quite so eager to replicate everything that comes out of the White House. So, I mean, I think it has had some impact, actually, but, you know, sadly, uh, the country is so divided that people are turned off by neutrality at this point and you know that's i think that's a tragedy but that's kind of where we've come from and honestly i do blame the white house uh to some degree for that it's not getting any better and and look at this trump indictment oh my gosh i mean well talk let's, about further let's division. go there yeah i mean I, i'm looking at politico uh online the top story here even trump's critics don't think indictment will bury him Okay, even Trump's critics don't think uh, indictment. Uh, Steve Moore, what do you think of that? Will will, will this um, indictment bury him or not? Yeah, so I'm not a legal expert by any means. So I read with fascination the Wall Street Journal editorial, I guess it was this morning. Did you read it? Yeah. I thought it was fabulous, A+. Every American should read that editorial. And by the way, you know, I know Fowles ago, I know Dan Henniger. They're not big cup fans, as you know, Larry. And it was, it just obliterated any case for this this is all politics it has nothing to do with breaking the law it's all about get trump at any cost it is a travesty what what biden has done to our justice department none of us are safe liz you're not safe i'm not safe larry you're not anyone who is associated with with a right-wing clause or trump uh, they're coming after you and it's this kind of situational ethics that I find so disturbing in the left right now, that the ends really do justify the means. They're out to get Trump at, at, at any cost. And the irony, of course, is that this the more they do this, the more it's almost uh, inevitable that Trump will be the nominee for the Republicans because every conservative in the country is infuriated by what the Justice Department is doing here. You know, one of the key points, maybe the key point in that editorial, Liz, was that the indictment never mentioned the Presidential Review Act. Right. Which is what this is all about. And, you know, that is a civil case issue and gives the president unlimited powers to classify and to declassify. Never mentioned. This espionage stuff is just a load of bull. 
It is. Yeah. So um, I actually have a piece just come out on the Hill about it and talking about three ways this is really damaging to the country. And, and I think it really is. Uh, to me, I, I mean, obviously, you're going to be looking back at Bill Clinton's problems with classified documents, Hillary Clinton's problems. I went month to month through how Joe mm-hmm. Biden uh, was treated differently than Donald Trump and so forth. And I agree, it's 100% political. Uh, did he behave badly? Yes. But I would say one thing that's in my piece that isn't in the journal, which actually I just read, uh, is I, I think what part of Trump's motive, what, what they never do in the indictment, which is many pages long, they never talk about why he did this. In other words, there's no accusation that he wanted to sell secrets or betray the country. And in the case of Hillary Clinton, remember, Comey talked about intent. What was her intent? Well, what was Donald Trump's intent? I mean, the only thing you kind of come away from is that he is just normally obstructive and surly and arrogant uh, and lazy. I mean, there's many comments about, you know, aides saying, well, can you get him to go through the boxes? And the answer, I'm sure he was just like, oh, I don't want, who would want to go through hundreds of boxes? But I think at the end of the day, uh, there is just not much in this. I think uh, what I was going to say is the thing also that no one has talked about, if I were Trump, would I want the FBI going through hundreds of boxes of my personal records? Mm. No. You just had a report come out from special counsel John Durham saying that the FBI is essentially corrupt. It is essentially a hate Trump organization. Mm. Would you turn over voluntarily a whole lot of material to Mm. them in the uh, on ramp of a of a political uh, campaign and allow them to go through all that stuff. I wouldn't, and I think that was part of his motivation. Yeah, those are good points, Liz. Uh, the intent issue is a particularly good point. Um, Mark Levin talked about this on Hannity Thursday night uh, with respect to this silly espionage. I mean, I had Dershowitz on the show last night, and he said, Espionage Act is just the biggest, it's the worst piece of legislation. He said, liberals have hated the Espionage <laughs> yeah. Act for the last 100 years. Uh, Woodrow Wilson started it in 1917, used it to punish his enemies. They're trying to use it again to punish their enemies, which, of course, is Trump. They don't want Trump to become president. But it's not like he was selling secrets to foreign governments, okay? And that's what espionage is supposed to be all about. He didn't do any such thing. I mean, Trump was Trump. You're right. Uh, The guy has flaws and uh, says things that probably shouldn't say. But at the end of the day, he's the president, and he has the powers, according to the uh, Review Act, to do whatever he wants. And he didn't do anything bad. And by the way, he'll give stuff back. He's already given some back. I mean, I don't understand this. I don't see where the Bidens think they're going with this, Steve. Uh, Larry, can I just interject something? I think this was done absolutely the day that we had very credible accusations leveled against Joe Biden for taking a bribe in Ukraine. Yes, that's it. Is it anyone It gave the media total cover to ignore that story yeah, and rush point. off in search of the latest misdeeds by Donald Trump. I think 100%, it's so blatant Liz. and so obvious and so offensive. 100% Liz, this was to distract from the Burisma story yep. and the bribery story. Uh, they have more and more evidence uh, that Burisma gave five million bucks to Hunter and five million bucks to uh, Joe Biden when he was vice president. God knows what they're doing now. 
All these accounts, uh, these little accounts uh, were done to try to obscure it. Yep. I, 100%, Liz. Uh, by the way, you should get read. Uh, there's a story on Fox Digital uh, by reporter Brooke Sangman, a phenomenal story about it, Burisma wanted to set up shop in the United States. They wanted rights to either set up shop or align with an American energy company, and they were not permitted to do it. And that's why they went to Joe Biden. That's where this came from. And then this uh, prosecutor in the Ukraine, which Biden got rid of and yeah, bragged yeah, about it to the Council on Foreign Relations. That's right. I couldn't agree. This was to distract from that. Steve, that's, you know, Steve, the Burisma story and the bribery story is really the biggest issue. That's the perhaps the biggest story in American political history. And it's not going to go away. Jim Comer's doing a good job, Steve. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I think, and, and, and the noose is tightening. Yeah, so we had a, a cartoon in the hotline on Friday. I hope everybody's getting our uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity hotline. But anyway, it had, it had Dr. Evil, remember, from the movie. And he's shouting, they know about the, the Biden bribery. And then the other guy says, what are we going to do? We're going to have to indict Trump. <laughs> and that's exa- I mean, that summarizes exactly what's going on here. All right. We're going to take a quick break, <laughs> folks. We are talking with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We are talking to Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash, Pro- Unleash Prosperity, and his great show, WABC Radio, More Money, which follows this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Come back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his radio show, More Money, which follows this show directly. Uh, kids, a good column by Kim Strassel. The GOP gets to vote harvesting. After leaving ballots on the table in 2022, the party finally warms to early voting, I would say 2020 also. So the way I read this is the Democrat criminals got away with it. Now it's time to unleash the Republican criminals so we can harvest our hearts out and finally win. What do you make of this, uh, Liz Peek? This seems like a good idea. Well, look, I think, yes, I think that the Republicans have to engage in every possible system of attracting votes, whether they're new or old, whether we're, we think they're tasteful or distasteful. But there are states where this is perfectly legal, like California. And also, I mean, Republicans are at a huge disadvantage in this operation because Democrats have the teachers unions. At the stroke of a pen, Randy Weingarten and her equivalent on the other big unions send hundreds of thousands of people out into the field to register voters, get them on buses and send them to the uh, polling stations and to collect uh, um, ballots. And I think, you know, we underestimate the power of that field force, if you will. Uh, But my gosh, we certainly have to engage with it. And Steve, you know, Zuckerbucks, $500 million in 2020. I mean, you know, Trump said they're stealing votes. It wasn't about the vote count. It was about all the harvesting that occurred way before the vote count. 
So GOP's got to finance this and get in the game and whatever it takes. I couldn't agree more. You know, I'm tired of people complaining about all the money Soros put in. Where, where is the money on the on our side yeah. to counter that? And we need, you know, the Charles Cokes of the world and, and Elon Musk of the world uh, to to uh, to counteract that. Um, look, early voting is here to stay. Uh, we are getting killed because the left is so far ahead of us in terms of getting people to early vote. So we need to do that. We need. I, I have just a personal confession. I was going to vote in the midterms. And I was I usually vote on Election Day and I got so busy, I didn't make it to the voting booth. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we've got to get our people to vote. And the left is really good at this. I mean, the one thing they're really good at, Larry, is politics. Yeah. They're not, they're not well, good Steve, at governing, but they're very good at politics. Steve, now we know who to blame for the Republican law. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was look, all off the record, by the way. Right. No, <laughs> oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. Nobody heard. It was just us kids. Uh Harvesting is a very bad thing, but if they're going to do it, we have to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's just the the story here. That's why I say yeah. we have to unleash our criminals. We know how to do it. Get them out there. <laughs> this time we got to finance them properly. Look, I think it would have made a big difference in 2020. You look at the votes and the way those yeah. votes, remember, it got turned yeah. around on election night. Some of these states like mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, yeah. Wisconsin, Michigan. I mean, I think Michigan, exactly. Yeah. I think it's a very important thing. What's going to happen? I don't know whether the Trump indictment affects this or not, but the first debate uh, is in August in Milwaukee. Uh, Liz, do you think Trump will participate in that debate? Well, he he has certainly indicated that he doesn't want to do that. Um, and I it, look, the reasons he doesn't want to is he's way ahead. He figures all what what does he have to gain? Is he really going to? increase his share of the uh, primary voter pool by appearing on that stage with all those people? Probably not. He could lose a little bit. And he brings probably millions of voters to watch uh, this Mm -hmm. debate. And if he's not there, there, all the other people in the race will have a smaller audience. So I understand why he might not want to do it. I hope he will. Uh, Polls show that he should because voters really want to see him debate these people. I'm not, I don't know. I mean, you know it better than I do. I don't, I don't know what he'll do. He's a good debater, Steve, but what you think? You think he'll do it? Uh, you know, one thing I learned from Trump is that, you know, he does know the art of the deal. And, you know, Liz is so right that he holds all the cards here. So he can sort of, he can basically say, this is the way it's going to be. And if you're not going to set up this debate this way, I'm not participating. And I think that that's probably where we're going to end up. But I want him to debate. I want to see all these guys, Larry. I think we got a great field of candidates this year. Well, you got to have 40,000 individual unique donors, right? So that's, I mean, the debate won't be quite as large as the number of candidates. Anyway, we're running... <laughs> We're running out of time. Liz Peake, the best of the best. Steve Moore, the best of the best. Please listen to Steve Moore's show right after this show. I'm Cudlow. I'll be back next weekend. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.